Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, it's page 915 in the hardback Bibles that we've got there in the pew in front of you. Um, it'll be helpful if you have a copy of God's Word open in front of you so you can see as, as we move along throughout the sermon text. We've been in uh, the book of Galatians <coughs> and the book of 1 Samuel. Um, so uh, I'm preaching through Galatians. The other elders are tag-teaming 1 Samuel. And um, Galatians, we've been in it several months now. We're here in chapter 4, a couple more chapters. But this morning, we're looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Normally, there would be a, sort of a bare-bones outline on the back of the worship guide, so you could at least see the main points. But um, this week was a little bit crazy with sickness at home, and then lightning strikes around here, and it kills the church's internet, and then the printer doesn't work. So all sorts of things. God's in charge, so it's all fine. But anyway, on the back, you'll see there's just a blank for sermon notes, if that's helpful for you, to write anything down as, as we move along. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Um, in 2005, I had the opportunity to go and work for a church in Washington, D.C., and uh, we actually stayed there on the hill. And so for six months, I lived in this row house on East Capitol Street. So the Supreme Court was about a block and a half away from our house, and the Capitol was a few blocks down the road. And um, it was great to live in Washington, D.C., especially if you live there on the hill. I didn't fill up my car with gas once when I was there because you can just take public transit and you can walk a lot of places. Pretty great. One thing I was surprised, a lot of things I was surprised about, but one thing I was surprised about was, uh, was how much construction is always going on um, on the Capitol. And part of that is just because there's unending flow of money to do projects like that. So it's, it's no thing for them to fix whatever needs to be fixed. But, but there's scaffolding everywhere all the time. So if you've been and visited D.C., you've seen this. So it's not everything all at once, but there's always sections of town where they're scaffolding everywhere because they're doing significant construction, whether it's cleaning up a monument or something on a government building or, or whatever it is. Well, the thing is, I mean, when that scaffolding comes down, nobody is disappointed that the scaffolding has come down. And there's no calls for saying like, okay, let's put the scaffolding back up. No, everybody understands the scaffolding had a purpose once that purpose is fulfilled, then you don't put the scaffolding back up. It's better to have it be gone because the thing you want to focus on is the building. And once the building is there and completed, whatever project they're doing, you don't need the scaffolding any longer. Well, well, this argument Paul's been making in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4 in the middle of this letter is basically the same. He's saying for the Christian, the Old Testament law is the same way. So it was scaffolding. It was designed for a particular purpose which was to get us to Jesus. And now that we're to Jesus, we don't need that Old Testament law anymore. We don't need to revert. So that's kind of the main idea of this passage. So with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord, Galatians 4, 1 through 11. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, 
How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Okay, so, so what are we supposed to do with this passage of Scripture? We're regularly reminding ourselves of that. We're never supposed to hear the word preached just to get smarter so we know more things. No, we're always intended to do something with us. It creates life in us. It's always calling us to obey the Lord, to believe certain things. Okay, so what are we supposed to do with this passage of Scripture? Three things. Again, these are the things that in a normal week would be printed. They're not printed there today. But three things, we'll review them up front. First, remember that Jesus is the only possible Savior for sinners. It's the first thing Paul hits on here. Jesus is the only possible Savior for sinners. We need to remember that. Second, feel the relief of redemption. And then finally, third, don't turn back to ritual righteousness. Those are the three things this passage is, is calling us to do. So look at the way Paul opens this section, verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Okay, Paul's picking up the same illustration that he used at the end of chapter 3. This illustration about being children and then becoming adults. And his children were kind of like slaves. He's picking up this theme that he talked about earlier. Look back up to the, the previous paragraph. Chapter 3, verses 23 through 26 of Galatians. He says there, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, kind of like a babysitter. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, so remember what we learned there a couple of weeks ago, the end of Galatians chapter 3. So the Mosaic Covenant, which included all those Old Testament laws, it, it said that the way for Israel to receive blessing was through obeying those laws, was through following those commands in the Mosaic Covenant, the, the covenant that God gave to Moses when he comes down from Sinai after the people of Israel had come out of, uh, out of Egypt. So the way to receive the blessing was through obedience to those laws. That's what the law covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that's what it said. And we saw this in chapter 3, but, but Paul points out how the Mosaic covenant, in that way it works opposite of the gospel. Because remember, the gospel doesn't work that way. The good news of Jesus works a fundamentally different way. Blessing comes not by obedience, but through faith, through trust alone in Christ alone. Listen to Galatians 3, verse 12. But the law, talking about the Mosaic law, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Okay, so under the old covenant, spiritual life came through obedience. Forgiveness of sin came through obedience to the law. But, but Paul, in this letter, he's made it clear why that situation wasn't sustainable. That's the way our world thinks. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll make myself right with the Lord by being good enough. But the Bible makes it really clear that's not a sustainable situation. That can't work. Look back. We're still doing some review here, but it's helpful. Look back at chapter 3, verse 10. This is why it's not sustainable to pursue righteousness through our own works. Chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. 
Okay, so for the person who's relying on their obedience in order to be righteous in God's eyes, in order to become his children, they're going to end up cursed because you have to fulfill the law perfectly if that's the route that you're going for righteousness, and no sinner can do that. So, so at some point, you, you may have had a boss or a teacher or some other person in your life who, who was never satisfied with what you did. Most of us have experienced this, right? So this, this, uh, I, I worked in coffee shops in graduate school, and there was always that supervisor maybe where they're saying, okay, you know, clean the floor, or clean the bathroom or whatever, and you work as hard as you can at that thing, but you just know they're going to find something going to be some spot. There's going to be something they walk in and instantly they say, oh, did you decide not to, not to get that corner? Did you decide not to get that part of the mirror? So you've probably experienced that. There's certain people, certain tasks, they're never satisfied with, with what you did. They find the one typo. They find the one spot that, that wasn't clean enough. They hear the one mistake in the recital. Well, that's what God's law does. That's what the law of the Old Testament does. It, it's, it's the teacher that's standing over your shoulder, watching you take the test, pointing out every mistake. That's what the law of God does. So, so do you see now why Paul describes that situation as slavery? That makes sense, doesn't it? That's an oppressive situation for the law to just always be pointing out where you had fallen short. But see, the good news is God's intention was never to leave his people in that situation. That was never the idea. In fact, the purpose of the old covenant the reason God gave Israel his law was precisely to get them out of that situation of slavery. Okay, back to our passage, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Okay, so, so when God's people were under the Old Testament law, he was still treating them as heirs, we're told here. So, so in other words... He, he's, still, uh, he's still intending to do good to them. He, he didn't give them the law in order to permanently condemn them. No, in verse 1, he says the Old Testament people were actually the owner of everything. Okay, so how does that work? They're, they're the heirs of salvation, but they're living like slaves because they're under the law covenant that points out all their shortcomings. So how can they be like children and like slaves at the same time? Paul tells us in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Okay, so think about a king who has servants or slaves, but then he's also got his own children, right? And one of those children is the prince. He's the heir to the throne. Okay, what's the similarity between those slaves and between that child prince? Well, the similarity is somebody else is telling them what to do. Somebody else is telling them where to go, how long to be there, what to do when they are there. But see, the difference is the child is only, only being directed temporarily until he reaches adulthood. It's temporary. And then once he reaches adulthood, then he gets the full inheritance. So talking about the child, verse 2 says, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Okay, so the law, it was like the babysitter. We talked about this before. It was like the babysitter who's watching over and directing God's people during the Old Covenant. But the whole purpose of that babysitter, the whole purpose of the law, was to direct God's people to Jesus Christ. Verse 3 in our passage. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
So the purpose of the law was to show Israel how sinful they were, how much they needed a savior, so that when God finally sent Jesus into the world, his people would run to him in faith for their salvation. So, so whereas the false teachers around the Galatian churches were telling these young Christians that to be part of God's people, they needed to obey certain parts of the Old Testament law, Paul's reminding them, no, the purpose of the law was simply to get you to Christ. He's the one who can save you, the only one who can save you. And this is our first main point this morning. We did a, sort of a lot of legwork up front, but this is the first point in this passage for us. Remember that Jesus is the only possible savior for sinners. He's the only possible savior for sinners. Now, now let's look at what makes Jesus able to be this savior for us. Because we know that in our world, there are tons of proposed solutions for salvation, right? Probably just about as many people as you know, you would get probably as many different answers about how somebody can become right with the Lord, how somebody can end up in heaven when they die. There's lots of proposed solutions for salvation, lots of suggested paths to heaven. But make no mistake, Jesus, Jesus said he was the exclusive path. That's what Jesus says. This is John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so, so what about Jesus makes him the only way to get to heaven? There's lots of different proposed options. What is unique about Jesus that makes him actually the only one that can make it happen? The only one who can actually save sinners, Paul tells us. Verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Okay, so first thing Paul reminds us of, Jesus was born of woman. So the Son of God became man. That's what he's reminding us of there. Jesus is human. He actually remains human. So today, Jesus is before the throne. He is still fully God and fully man. He will be fully God and fully man for all eternity. Jesus is human. He was born of woman. And what's, what's one of the biggest pieces of evidence for that? Well, one huge one is that, that he died, right? And if he was merely God, well, divinity can't die. So he was man, right? It's the human part of him that died. That's evidence that he was fully man. His death showed that he was human. But, but we don't have to wait until the end of his life to see that he was human. This is where Paul points us. We see it at the very beginning of his life because he was born of woman. It's a crazy thought. We're used to it in our culture. Even if you're here and you're a non-Christian, that probably doesn't do much. You hear that, you think, okay, God became man. Got it. Yeah, I've heard this before. As Christians, it's easy to skate past that. But this is a pretty crazy thing. Mary carried Jesus in pregnancy, and, and then Jesus was born. And Haley Lawson, if she was here this morning, she could tell you because she's a labor and delivery nurse, human women have human babies 100% of the time. Never deviates from that. So, so God sent his son to become a human. Okay, so one, one question to ask that I think this passage points us to and gives an answer for. Okay, before the son of God was in Mary's womb, what was he? Right? He became man. Okay, so what was he before? Well, he was God. Second phrase of verse four. God sent forth his son. So, so God's son became a man, where all of a sudden, 
he was both man and God's son. But, but before that, before he became a man, he was only God's son. Now, now, that doesn't mean that God the Father was around for a while like human fathers and then decided to have a son, to generate a son somehow. So Jesus was not around, and then all of a sudden, the second person of the Trinity is around. There's several Christianity knockoff religions that say that, but that's not true. No, what, what the Bible teaches is that the Son of God is fully God. He has been around forever with the Father and the Spirit. When the Bible talks about Jesus being God's Son, the point is Jesus is the same kind of thing that God the Father is. They're made, they're made of the same divine stuff. So that idea of you're a chip off the old block, you know, for sons versus father, it's that kind of idea. Oh, you're the same kind of thing. God the Son, the same kind of thing, fully God, that the Father is. Listen to the way we say it in our church's confession of faith. They, so the Father and the Son, they are both one in substance and equal in every divine perfection. So Jesus is God's Son because he's the same divine substance as the Father. Here's what we're told in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's a nickname for Jesus in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the second person of the Trinity, fully God, he became man. Now for a second, think about the tremendous amount of humble love that that takes. For the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to leave heaven, perfection, perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, for all eternity, all eternity past, he leaves that, and he comes down to add a human nature to himself and live in this sinful world. And not only that, but the Son of God didn't, didn't come and become man as an adult or as a teenager. He became man as an infant, as a, as a baby. It's an incredible kind of humble love to be able to do that. So if you think about your children, if you have children, the amount of time in their life where they needed significant help with everything. So what, maybe five years, six years old, where they couldn't really do much of anything for themselves. That was about 20% of Jesus's earthly life. Isn't that wild? About 20% of Jesus's earthly life, he could do very little for himself. Had to rely on other people. J just think about the children you know who are infants to about six years old. They, they can't get food for themselves. They, they need their nose wiped. They get scared during thunderstorms, need to be comforted. They trip and fall. Before they can talk, the only way they can alert their parents that they need something is to cry. That was the Son of God. Is that not wild? The kind of humble love that that takes to leave heaven as the Son of God. One moment, you're controlling the universe, the Son of God was, Colossians tells us. And then the next moment, you need somebody else to change your diaper. Is that not incredible? That's the kind of love that our God has for us, that the Son of God left there and came here. Why did he do it? Paul tells us in verse 5. He did it to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That word redeem, we don't use it too much anymore, but it means for somebody to pay a price so somebody else can be released. It was, it was used commonly for, uh, for slaves in the first century. It was also used commonly for prisoners of war, where they were captured, and that opposing army would say, yeah, we'll release this guy if you pay this price. 
the ransom price. So you'd pay the ransom and then you could redeem that soldier. Jesus came to pay a price so sinners could be released from capture and become God's sons. That's why he did that thing that we just described, was to pay that price. So again, chapter 3, verse 10 tells us we were all headed for eternal cursing because of our sins. That's what we deserve, by the way. Every, every human born into this world has one job. One job, that job is to, to live a life of fellowship with our maker, where we're glorifying him by living the way he tells us to live. That's our job. We've all failed miserably at that job. <laughs> we see that right in our own lives. The Bible doesn't have to tell us that. It does, but we see it in our own lives. We, we put ourselves before the Lord often, don't we? Even as Christians. Regularly, we put ourselves before the Lord. In fact, every time we sin, that's, that's what we're doing. We see what the Lord calls us to do to glorify him. We go the opposite direction. So whenever we're jealous, we're putting ourselves and our desires above what God wants for us. Whenever we prioritize our own entertainment over corporate worship, same thing, putting our desires above what God wants for us. But we also put ourselves above the people around us regularly, don't we? Regularly, we're not loving other people like God calls us to. We're loving ourselves more than we love other people. That's what we're doing when we're being dishonest or when we lust or when we get unrighteously angry. We, we've all done things like these and, and more. We're, we're sinners. And because we're so incredibly broken in the purpose for which we were created, we, we all deserve to be cast away from God into eternity. And anything apart from God equals death. That's what we deserve. Eternal death apart from God's presence. But, but see, the gospel tells us because God's so incredibly gracious, he sent Jesus to spare us from that. In the words of verse 5, Jesus came to redeem us. He came to pay a price to free us from slavery. And what was that price? Paul was clear about that back in chapter 3, verse 13. Flip a page over if you need to. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Okay, so the price Jesus had to pay to free us was for him to take our punishment for sins on himself. That's what the cross was all about. He was taking our punishment on himself. That's the price that he paid to hang on the cross until he was dead. That's exactly what we needed. We needed somebody to pay for our sins. Most of us probably remember the, the horrible events with the Penn State football coach that happened years and years ago and the abuse that happened there. But, but I think most people that were familiar with that story are, are agreed that one of the worst parts about that story was that there were several adults that knew it was happening and they didn't say anything. They swept it under the rug, usually because of their own career advancement. They didn't want to upset the apple cart. They thought we've got a good thing going. Isn't it crazy how evil we are? It's so evil. But that's what humans do. Well, see, our God is too good for that. God is too good to overlook sin. He can't ignore it. Not the way that we do as sinful humans. He can't sweep it under the rug. He has to make it right because it's in his character to always be right and just and good. So sin has to be punished. And there's only two ways that sin can be rightly punished. And the first way is the way we'd all expect. The sinner can pay for his own sins through punishment. Now, the, the big problem with that is because it's an eternally good and worthy God that he sinned against, the punishment is likewise eternal. So it's a steep cost. 
or the person that takes their sin on their shoulders and says, I'll pay for this myself. Like Jesus says in Matthew 25, 46, he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So just like heaven is eternal, hell is eternal too. And that's where God's enemies will have to go at the day of judgment in order to pay for their sins. But praise God, there's another way. And the other way is to let another pay for your sins as your substitute. But here's the thing, and again, we're getting back to this idea of Jesus is the only savior for sinners. For somebody to be our substitute, they have to meet very specific criteria. And here are the criteria, two main ones. First of all, this person has to be a human. That should make sense to us, right? If you're substituting someone to pay for the punishment of humans, that substitute should be a human. So right after graduate school, I managed a Starbucks for a while. Uh, and we started having kids and bought a house in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was managing that Starbucks. I think I probably did it for four or five years. It was always really, really interesting. So when I would make new hires, we'd go through a lot of different things about uh, different policies. And I would always talk to them about the policy of getting time off, right? And it was so interesting. This happened, I think, almost every single time. They would, that new hire would say something like, hey, so I'd, I'd love it if I could have Christmas and Thanksgiving off, but I'll work Flag Day and, you know, Memorial Day or St. Patrick's Day. And I would always have to say, yeah, I see what you're saying. That'd be great. But everybody wants to do that. <laughs> you know, there's nobody that says, you know, what? my family has this huge Flag Day celebration every year where people drive in hundreds of miles. And so could I be off? We have this big meal. No, 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 no. It happens with Christmas and Thanksgiving. So what I would have to say to people is, hey, those two types of holidays, those aren't the same thing, right? They're different. That's not really like for like. And see, it's, just, it's the same thing here. The substitute for human sinners has to be human. That's what verse 4 is getting at. God sent forth his son, born of woman. But the second criteria is he has to be a perfect human. It can't be just any human. It has to be a perfect human. Because remember, this substitute isn't paying for the sins committed against a human sinner. He's paying for the sins committed against an eternally good God. And he's not paying for the sins of one person. He's paying for the sins of everyone who God decides to save. So to, to use the terminology of the Old Testament animal sacrifices, this person has to be a spotless sacrifice. He's got to be human, has to be a perfect human. And that's what the Lord's telling us at the end of verse 4. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law. Okay, what's that mean? Jesus was born under law. Well, it means that Jesus fulfilled God's law perfectly. That's what that means. He obeyed it perfectly. He never sinned ever, not even once. Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus is without sin. Matthew 3.15 says Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. But see, only God can do that. God's the only one who can be perfect. Jesus tells us that. This is Mark 10, 18. He says, no one is good but God alone. Okay, so the only one who can redeem sinners is the one who is fully man and fully God, who gives their life to pay for sins. There is only one person who has ever or will ever be able to fit that bill, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who is fully God and fully man. Verse 4 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're not really sure what, what you think about Jesus, we can tell you with confidence, this is the only way you can be saved. This is the only option. He's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who's fully God and fully man. That, that won't happen again. So the response is, trust in this one. Trust in Jesus Christ. Put your hope and confidence in him to pay for your sins so you can be reconciled to God. Give your life to Christ. You can see how much he, he loves us to leave heaven, to come here as, as a humble baby, to subject himself to murder on a cross. Listen, you'll never meet a kinder Lord than Jesus, right? We know, the Christians here know, you'll never meet a kinder Lord than Jesus. You'll never meet another savior. So come to Christ by placing your full faith and confidence in him to save you. Talk with me or another elder here. If you're willing to have that conversation, talk about these things, about the good news of the gospel. Now, for, for the members of Cornerstone Baptist Church and, and our other Christian brothers and sisters among us this morning, how encouraging is it to hear everything that we just talked about? That's so encouraging, isn't it? Such an encouragement to be reminded about what Jesus did for us. Now, there's two main reasons Paul rehearses these truths for the Galatians here in, in chapter 4 of Galatians. The first is so that they would feel the relief of redemption. That's our second main point this morning. Feel the relief of redemption. So these false teachers, they were harassing these young Christians. They were saying, you guys aren't really part of God's family. You're trusting in Jesus, that's great, but you also need to be fulfilling these particular commands in the Old Testament. And if you're not obeying these particular commands, then you're not really saved. You're not really part of God's family. That's what they were saying to these young Christians, but, but Paul's reminding them that the Old Testament law could never save them because, again, all the law could do was point out their sin. The law was given by God not to save them, but to get them to Jesus, the only one who could save them. And since they've come to Jesus, they're now God's sons. They're heirs of the full inheritance of salvation. And if you're a Christian, then you are too. So through faith alone in Christ alone, your sins have been forgiven and you have been made right with God. As, as a Christian, God wants you to feel the relief that that brings. He wants you to feel the relief of redemption. Now, now you might be thinking, okay, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. I believe everything we just talked about. I'm a Christian. I want to feel that relief. But oftentimes I, I don't feel that relief. Oftentimes I just focus on my own sin. I feel like I'm not good enough. Those are where, that's where my brain goes. And I don't feel this relief. Well, if that's you, the Lord is about to give you a huge practical help in our passage this morning. Verse six, he says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Okay, so remember what we learned back in chapter three, God only gives his Holy Spirit to Christians. It's only those who are trusting in Christ that get the Spirit and are saved. So when somebody becomes a Christian, not only does she gain God as her Father and Jesus as her Savior, she also gains God's Spirit that lives inside of her. So if someone has the Holy Spirit, then that person is a Christian. That's guaranteed. And praise God, the Holy Spirit gives you proof that he is inside of you. There's many proofs. This passage is talking about one in particular. What is it? Verse 6 again. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, 
Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit calls out for God the Father. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit calls out for God the Father. And isn't that so good to remember that, that even our calling out to God is due to the Holy Spirit? God really does get the credit for all of our salvation, doesn't he? Anytime we think, oh, you know what, I bet part of it's because I was just smart enough or more humble than other people, and that's probably why I'm a Christian. No, nothing in you is why you're a Christian. It's, it's all because of God's love to you. Even your desire for the Lord comes from the Holy Spirit in you. It reminds us of that down in verse 9. This is such a great verse. It's easy to pass over it, but this is significant. Verse 9, he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, it's an interesting turn of phrase by Paul. What, what's he getting at? Well, what he's saying is, yeah, we know God as Christians, but listen, the reason we know God is only because he decided to know us first. Paul's just making sure to sort of bake in some of that humility that comes from remembering God's sovereignty and salvation. The only reason you know God is because he decided to know you first. It's, it's part of that doctrine that in other parts of the New Testament, Paul calls election or predestination. We only know the Lord because he came and got us, because he decided to, to love us first. Okay, back up to verse six now. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You may have heard this before, that word Abba. That's the Aramaic word for father, but it was an intimate word. It wasn't sort of a cold. So we hear father, and in our culture, that kind of stand, sounds cold. If somebody calls their dad father, you're kind of like, huh, is this relationship okay? That's kind of odd, father. But it wasn't like that. So in Aramaic, this word was, was almost like if you said, my dear father, my dear dad. That's the kind of thing that comes across through that word, Abba. It wasn't an expression that anybody would have used for God until we find Jesus doing just that in Mark 14, 36. But see, that's exactly what Jesus has done. He, he's brought us into an intimate, close relationship with the God of the universe, where we can call God our dear father, Abba, father. So we, we can put all this together now. If you're calling out to God as your father, even if you feel sinful and, and not good enough and you question your salvation, if you're calling out to God the Father through God the Son, it's the Holy Spirit inside of you who's motivating that calling. And only Christians have the Spirit. Isn't that encouraging? Even when you feel like, oh, I'm so bad. Am I even a Christian? And you're turning and you're taking those thoughts to the Lord through Christ. And you're saying, oh, I feel so bad, and you're confessing sin, and, and you're trying to hold on to Jesus. That calling out, you didn't produce that from your flesh. That's because you have the Holy Spirit. And again, he only gives the Holy Spirit to believers. So hold on to that. If you question your salvation, if you have a sensitive conscience, some believers do, remember that. Your desire for the Lord, that's not your own doing. That's proof of the Spirit inside of you. So, so we can see how, how this should encourage us. Even the pursuit of the Lord, even when it's imperfect, it comes from the Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. Praise the Lord for that. And this should provide us with relief is what he's saying. The truth of the gospel should provide us with relief as Christians. If, if we've been adopted as his children, if he's paid for our sins, we should experience that great relief. And we all know what it feels like to experience relief. So our family flew on airplanes a lot over the past eight and a half years because we were in Maine, all our family was down south. So we have five kids. <laughs> and we've always had a kid that's little. 
And um, there's nothing like trying to move through an airport with, with little children. Um, in particular, I mean, if like, if I worked out all the time and was buff, then I could probably run and my heart rate, you know, would be if I was Brandon Prince, like not breaking a sweat and, you know, that sort of thing. But I am not that. And so it was pushing me to my physical limits and I'm carrying a kid and I'm about to hit muscle failure. And I'm thinking like, what's going to happen when I drop this child and all of those things. But anyway, praise the Lord, that never happened. But there were lots of times where we are running to a gate. And let me tell you, if you've experienced this, if you think you're going to miss a flight and then you get there, and that stewardess is still standing at the door and the door to the gate is open, oh, relief. Such a good feeling if you've experienced that. You, you may have gotten a call from your doctor before telling you that test results came back and that you don't have cancer or some other disease. Any of us have experienced that relief, right? You, you may have worked in a spot where you had heard that layoffs were coming, but your supervisor meets with you and tells you, hey, just so you know, your job is safe. Relief. We, we experience situations like that. Well, all of those examples are tiny shadows pointing to the reality of the greatest relief held out to us as humans, the relief of our sins being forgiven and us being made God's child. Verse six again, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So as a Christian, feel the relief of redemption. God wants that for you. But there's one final imperative for us here. One more thing God's using in this passage that he's calling us to do. And that is don't turn back to ritual righteousness. It's the third thing we'll see. The final thing, don't turn back to ritual righteousness. So remember the entire book of Galatians, it's one sustained argument where Paul's reminding these young Christians, they've become justified in God's eyes. They're adopted as his children. They've, they've had their sins forgiven, not through their own works, but through faith alone in Christ alone. So remember, we've seen these false teachers. They were saying, no, that's not good enough. You're not fully righteous in God's eyes until you get circumcised was the main thing they were saying. Or the male members of your house circumcised. You gotta follow the Old Testament law if you wanna be righteous in God's eyes. But Paul makes it clear, no, that's a false gospel. That's the gospel of faith plus works. And a distortion of the gospel, we saw this in chapter one, is a desertion of the gospel. But, but see, circumcision wasn't the only work from the Old Testament law the false teachers were focused on. Look at the one Paul mentions here, verse nine. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Okay, so we, we get more insight into what exactly the false teachers were saying. It wasn't just get circumcised. In this example, we're told they were also saying, you need to keep the religious calendar from the old covenant as part of your relationship with the Lord. You're not righteous unless you do that. You revert to the Old Testament uh, uh, feasts and holy days. You need to keep all of those. And, and that's why our Old Testament reading this morning was from 2 Chronicles 8, because that's one spot where we're given several of those religious holidays back to back to back. If, if you ever want to play a fun game with yourself, I guess it would probably be an edifying game, kind of a nerdy game maybe, but I'm going to start doing it with my kids. I thought of this this past week. So the opposite Testament reading, I don't know if you guys have noticed this. So if it's a New Testament passage being preached, the scripture reading is from the opposite Testament, but it's always the same theme. 
So if Paul quotes the Old Testament, that's going to be the Old Testament passage. If he doesn't quote the Old Testament, but there's something in the Old Testament that'll be helpful for that sermon passage, that's what I'm going to. So I'm going to start saying to my kids, hey, so here's the sermon passage. You know that Pastor Tim or whoever's preaching. Here's the New Testament reading. You guys look at it. See if you can tell me what the connection is, right? So you could do that with your kids. Maybe that'll be fun. We'll see. So anyway, that's Second Chronicles 8 that Tim Hooser read. Lots of these festivals and feasts back to back to back. And there were lots of them. So Old Covenant Israel in the Old Testament, they, they had a weekly holy day, the Sabbath. That was Saturday. That word means stoppage, Sabbath. So they weren't allowed to work. Probably understand that. So that was set apart as holy. That happened every week. But then they had several annual religious holidays. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement. So the Old Testament law, it brought with it a full calendar. And just like circumcision, these false teachers were saying to these young Christians, you'd better participate in these religious holidays. You'd better do these things. You'd better keep the Day of Atonement. You'd better keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You'd, you'd better recognize the weekly Sabbath. You can't really be a Christian without keeping those special days on the calendar. And the Galatians, as Paul makes clear, they were being tempted to think, oh, I bet that's true. And they were starting to revert and to keep those religious days from the Old Testament. And here's why I think that is. Here's why I think a calendar full of religious holidays is always going to be tempting for people. This is so interesting. There's something about our world and our weak human nature where we want to look for righteousness, not by actually pursuing righteousness, but by pursuing special times and days and seasons. I think in this passage says, so this is true, this is not my idea, that's just baked into this world. That's baked into what it is to be a human, that, that we're, also, we're often looking for special times, special days, special seasons. And, and I think that a big part of that is because the recognition of a holy day is a kind of righteousness that in, in part can actually be achieved. So just think to yourself, if somebody said to you, okay, I'm gonna give you $100 if you can do one of these two things. You can pick which one you do. Either today you love your neighbor as yourself, or you go to this particular special place on this special day, do this special thing. Okay, we're all gonna pick the second one, right? Get that $100. That's much easier, those sorts of external things, than loving our neighbor as ourself. Ritual righteousness, in the way humans think about it, it's an easy kind of righteousness. And that's got to be a big reason why, apart from Christianity, just about every religion in the world has certain holy days where part of the way you pursue righteousness before God is by setting that day aside, or setting that week aside, or, or setting that month aside as significant. So um, among other holy days, Islam has the, the month of Ramadan. You probably are familiar with that if you have any Muslim friends. Buddhism has Ancestors Day. Not as popular here, right? Many of us probably don't know what that is. The, the Roman Catholic Church has their day when they celebrate Mary, the mother of God, as they would say it. Hinduism has Diwali. When, when it comes to religion, humans have this intuition to count certain days as special certain days as religiously significant. And so we can think about it even this morning, just think about all the churches that are gathering in our country. There are certainly more non-Christians willing to visit church today than they were last Sunday, or than they will be willing to visit next Sunday. 
Now, we, we praise the Lord for that, right? Praise God that he leverages that for, for non-believers. And you might, again, be here and be a non-believer, and that's exactly why you came this morning. Praise the Lord. But a good question to ask that, that our passage would point at us to, I think, is why is that? You know, I think there's probably lots of, of reasons, but one of them is this instinct inside of the human heart to seek out special holy times, certain days that are special, certain weeks that are special, certain months that are special. Look down at verse 9 again. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. So, so the thinking that, that part of our relationship with the Lord is built on our observation of certain special days, Paul calls that an elementary principle of the world. In other words, it's something the world sees as instinctual. So that the desire for holy days, it's, it's baked into our intuition as people. But in our passage, the Lord says it's actually a bad instinct. It's actually a bad intuition. He calls it weak and worthless. Okay, but of course, this raises the question, if you're thinking about it, then why did God institute holy days under the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, right? If it's a weak and worthless principle, well, why'd God leverage it? Well, it gets back to that distinction between children and adults that Paul keeps talking about in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. He did it because of the spiritual state of God's people in the Old Testament. So remember what we saw at the end of chapter 3 a few weeks ago, again in our passage this morning. Before Jesus came, God's people were like children who needed guardians or babysitters to train them, to, to lead them, to direct them to Christ. And that illustration works great for us because because children need certain rules and guidelines, right, to get them to adulthood. We all understand this. My younger kids, they have to walk in line at school. I was reminded of that. I picked up the kids the other day, and uh, yeah, Annie's class, they all had to line up and walk in a line. When's the last time you were at work and your supervisor said, all right, everybody line up. Let's line up. Time to take a bathroom break. So get in line, hands to yourself, right? One of Annie's teachers used to say, uh, hips and lips. So you keep this other one hand on your hip so you're not touching another kid, other finger in front of your mouth. Probably hadn't happened to you at, at work, right? Any adults here that, uh, that, that your parents call you on the phone each night and tell you when it's bedtime? My parents live in Greenville, South Carolina, so we have to talk on the phone. My dad has never called me as an adult and said, all right, Scott, it's getting late. It's probably time, probably time to turn in. No, that's, that's not the way it works, right? But but before Jesus, God's people were children. And out of love, he treated them like children with the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. And just like our children need imposed bedtimes, God's people needed imposed holy days. You see, those holy days were, were just like the animal sacrifices or the temple or the priesthood or the food laws. They were all signs pointing ahead to something else. They were all designed to get Israel to Jesus. Listen to the way Paul says it in Colossians 2. This was the congregational reading. Fits well with Galatians 4. This is Colossians 2, 17. Paul's talking about holy days from the Old Testament. He says this. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So they were always designed to point ahead to Jesus, just like everything in the Old Testament. So, so these Galatian Christians, they're being told they have to celebrate these certain holidays from the Old Testament as a way to really be part of God's people. But Paul's telling them, no, that, that's not true. In fact, he says that's, that's a reversion, not even going from adult to child. 
Paul says it's like going from adult to slave. Verse 9 again. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Okay, so why the harsh language? Well, why is it that big of a deal that they're reverting to this, this calendar of events? Well, it's because Paul knows that holy days and weeks and seasons will never be enough to make a sinner right with the Lord. And for the sinner who's trying to win God's favor through rituals like that, none of it will ever be enough to get out from under your sin and to get to God. And, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, can't you relate to what I'm saying? You know, haven't you seen yourself at times try to pursue certain religious practices, like setting apart a certain day as holy for your relationship with the Lord? I certainly remember doing that. I became a Christian when I was 16, but, but I remember years before that. And I remember thinking about religious holidays that way. I remember trying to draw some religious mileage in the Lord's eyes from my participation in, in Easter and Christmas. I remember thinking, yeah, my participation in this, this is winning me a little bit of credit, right, with the Lord. Of course, that wasn't the case, but, but that's how this works. It's easy to think that way. And again, Paul says that's sort of a principle built into the fabric of the world. That comes standard with us as, as humans. We're, we're just going to be tempted to think that's the way to win God's approval is, is through special holy days. But that's not how the gospel works. The, the only thing that connects us to God is Jesus Christ. And listen, what Jesus gets for us is infinitely better than what any special religious day on the calendar can do. So again, those holy days for Israel were a shadow. They, they were designed to, to temporarily provide God's presence to God's people so they could feel his presence and, and his care in a special way on those calendar days. But of course, as those who are connected to Jesus by faith, that's our entire life, isn't it? So when the, when the Old Testament Israelite pulled out his pen to mark the days where he was going to get to feel God's unique presence, when he's pulling out his calendar to circle those days, he circles the weekly Sabbath, he circles those feast days, right, those seven or eight days, those festivals. When the Christian pulls out their pen to do the same thing, we circle every day of the week, every day of the month, every day of the year. Through Christ, we have full access to God all the time. There's no place or time or event that can ever bring you any closer to God if you're a Christian. His presence and blessing has been made available to you every second of your life. Now, that is an incredible thing. Praise the Lord for it. Now, as we close, does this mean that as Christians, we can't celebrate Easter, or we can't celebrate Christmas, or we can't celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Sabbath? No, it does not mean that. Paul deals with this really clearly in Romans 14. You, you'll read that chapter this afternoon. That'd probably be encouraging. No, a Christian has freedom to celebrate any of those days as long as we don't think that participation in that day has any effect on our righteousness in God's eyes or any effect on our Christian maturity. Those are the two things we got to stay away from. Situations like that, Colossians, Christian maturity, you're standing in God's eyes, Galatians, that's where Paul says, nope, don't do it. Not if you think it has to do with your Christian maturity or you're standing in God's eyes. But as Christians, when we honor certain days and we're not doing it because of that spiritual maturity or standing in God's eyes, then there is freedom. This is what Paul says in Romans 14, 5. He couldn't be any clearer. He says one person, talking about Christians, 
One person esteems one day is better than another, you know, significant, unique, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So it's an issue of Christian freedom, right? Whether, whether a Christian treats Easter Sunday as different from the other 51 Sundays, or whether a Christian treats those 52 Sundays all exactly the same. And interestingly enough, you might not know this, we find both traditions throughout church history. You know, So Romans 14 kind of comes to fruition. There's Christians that have done both. So, so for the first 150 years or so of church history, there were no Christian holy days. There were no Christian holidays. So they had the weekly gathering on the Lord's Day, but there was nothing else that was instituted throughout the, throughout the year. They met every Sunday, but, but that was it. But around 120 years after the start of the church, the church sort of regionally began saying, like, what if we do set aside this, this single Sunday as thinking about Jesus's resurrection in kind of a unique way? And then it sort of spread out from there. So by 200 AD, it was pretty, pretty prevalent. And, uh, and then it went on from there, and, and, and basically that's been the majority opinion of, of the church ever since, with a few exceptions. But one of the exceptions, interestingly enough, the Puritans. So you may not have heard of the Puritans, but you can come talk to me if you want to talk about the Puritans, but we've benefited a lot from the Puritans. Theologically, they were so great. But those were the folks that started our country. So the pilgrims that came over to the New England colonies, not only did they not celebrate Easter and Christmas, you weren't allowed to celebrate Easter and Christmas. So there's been sort of different opinions on this throughout church history. In Romans 14, Paul tells us both of those practices are fine. But the point of what Paul is saying is that to revert back to the Old Testament calendar makes no sense. So to, to think that a day, a period of time from sunup to sundown has the ability to bring someone closer to the Lord, it's just one more form of works righteousness. That's why Paul's so exasperated at the end of our passage. Look at our last verse. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Those are strong words, aren't they? He's saying, I feel like my whole mission there might have been for nothing. That's wild. But, but see, Paul knew these Galatians were being tempted to give Jesus' responsibilities to a set of special days. They were ready to see their relationship with God as dependent, at least in part, on whether they had their calendars marked up the right way. But, but what Paul's saying is a calendar can never do what only Christ can do. Calendar can never do what only Christ can do. As non-Christians, we, we were enslaved to ritual righteousness, but, but don't turn back to that. Instead, press into the relief of redemption. The fact that as a Christian, you've been made God's child, and he will never revoke that. That, that occurred not because of your actions at all, but because of what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf. So, so praise our good and loving and all-sufficient Savior who's done what nothing or no one else ever can. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that the gospel is not just good news in name. We understand that all the time products are naming themselves based on something that isn't entirely true. This is true. The gospel is actual good news. And it's the kind of good news that, that nothing else in this world can provide to us. We understand, Father, our greatest need is to have our sins covered. All of us will have to stand before you one day and give an account for our sin. And the only question is whether a human will get to have to rather point to themselves and say, okay, I'm the one that's gonna have to take the punishment on my shoulders or whether somebody will do what Christians get to do, which is to point to Christ 
and then for us to walk into the new heavens and the new earth because our righteousness is not based on our works, but on Jesus's works on our behalf. Father, we're so thankful for that news. We're so thankful that there is no closeness to you left to be achieved. Father, there's, there's, no, there's no difference in our standing in your eyes that, that needs to be made up for by us doing anything, any particular rituals. That's all been achieved fully by our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that he would be honored in our lives and that we would experience the relief we have of redemption in Christ. Take a moment and pray silently and individually that the Lord would press these truths in on your heart. Take a few moments and, and pray that now.